Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, April 30th, 2023. The share ID numbers for Friday, April 28th, 2023, are the following. The 7 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study share ID number is 20205, 20,205. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study meeting, the share ID number is 20206. 20,206. This morning, A Vision for You presents Bill's story. What didn't work, what finally did. We have come to know that the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was written as a textbook. The book is methodically laid out to guide the student of recovery from a basic beginning history of the evolution of Alcoholics Anonymous in the preface and forwards. The doctor's opinion was written to describe the character and behavior and the progression of the disease of alcoholism. The doctor's opinion then outlines this only suggestion toward recovery from the disease. Bill's story, the focus of this Sunday special edition, is an elementary overview of what it was like, what happened, and what it is like now that Bill Wilson, a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, is recovered. The point of this chapter is for instruction for recovery. Its instruction also brings to us an opportunity to identify in step one, am I an alcoholic or for our program purposes, am I a compulsive overeater? Do I think like Bill thinks? Do I act like Bill acts? And do I eat like Bill drinks? And step two, can we come to believe in a power greater than ourselves that can restore our sanity? because we can't fix ourselves. No matter how disciplined in other respects, our minds cannot combat compulsive overeating, which resides in the mind. Insanity, right? A problem with executive functioning. No amount of decision-making, resolvations, (laughs) resolution, moral fiber, determination, or even dedication to the deepest love for a partner can come to our aid because of the strange mental blank spot that is a symptom of this disease. These thoughts to not pick up don't even come to mind. It resides in the mind. Today we have the express opportunity to learn what our guest speaker has experienced through study and application of the directions in this chapter of Bill's story. How the identifying and recovery process comes to life in Bill's story through her recovery journey each day. Stitching together, the text describes what methods worked and what methods did not work for her. This will show how recovery, even in fellowship, is a personal, sacred, spiritual rebuilding of life. A Vision for You is is delighted to welcome to the line today one of our own. Janet B. is a committed, faithful member of Overeaters Anonymous and a vision for you. She devotedly shares the good news of recovery to the still suffering compulsive overeater. Janice is from this beautiful state of New Jersey. Please help me welcome to the line today, our fellow sister in recovery, Janet B. Welcome, Janet. Hi, Melanie, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here again. Um, I always love talking about Bill's story and one time when I read it, I noticed there was a whole bunch of things he tried that didn't work. So I made a list and I came up with 10 things. And then, of course, 
the one thing, the only thing that ultimately did um, and that works for all of us addicts. So if you have your book, um, Bill's story opens on page one, and he talks about going to war. That's how he starts. He says, I was part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. Later on, he says, I forgot the strong warnings and the prejudices of my people concerning drink. I was lonely and again turned to alcohol. So here's a couple of things that didn't help him. Number one, changing circumstances. Things were really bad, right? I mean, he was, in, he was in war, and he turned to alcohol when he was lonely. But then he says, I was part of life at last. It was hilarious, exciting. And he again turned to alcohol. So he drank when he was lonely, and he drank when he was happy. And that reminds me of my situation. I actually started Overeaters Anonymous when I was in high school, and I was just binging away, couldn't stop, even though I was going to meetings. And I remember I said, I must be binging because I'm miserable. And then my circumstances changed. This college boy who I had this mad crush on invited me to a Beach Boys concert. I mean, there's nothing more heavenly than that when you're 17 years old. And I went out and binged. And I didn't understand it because my circumstances changed and I was happy. Um, But changing circumstances doesn't work for someone like us. Just like geographics don't work for someone like us. Imagine someone with cancer saying, I think I'll move from New York to LA. That will make my cancer cells stop multiplying. But of course it won't. We take our illness with us wherever we go and whatever our circumstances are. And the second thing that Bill says, he said, I forgot the strong warning I had heard. I mean, when I was a kid, my parents said to me, look both ways before you cross the street, because if you don't and a truck hits you, basically you'll be roadkill. I'm sure they said it more nicely than that. But I remember that. I mean, to this day, I look both ways before I cross the street. Or one time um, I had pneumonia. I'd gone to the hospital. I came back and the doctor said, this is the medicine you need to take. This is how often you need to take it. Well, believe you, I remember that, and I took that medicine exactly as it was prescribed. I didn't forget the strong warning. But something as important as alcohol um, and the danger of it, Bill forgot the warning. Why? Why did he forget? Um, I think we've talked about this before, that in people like us, we forget because the connection between our, where our memories are, what we've been taught, what we've been told, and our conscious mind is broken. So an example for me, um, I have horrible cat allergies. So if I'm near a cat, I have an asthma attack. So if I'm about to go into a pet store or a friend invites me to her house and I know she has a cat, my memory will go to the data points in my brain and this data point that says, you were near a cat and had an asthma attack this day. You were near a cat and you got really sick that day. It will scan the data points, generate a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind where I make my decisions and say, stop, danger. Cats will give you an asthma attack and I don't go near a cat. But yet when it came near food, something was different. In my brain were all these memories of my horrible binges. And specifically in college, remember I started in high school, 
there I was still in OA, but still binging in college. Um, my One of my particular binge foods was this kind of cookie. It came in a box of 20. And I would go to the store and tell myself, I'm just going to have one or two. And we all know how that story ended. So stored in my brain were all these data points of, you say you're going to just have one or two, but you're not going to be able to stop. You say you're going to have one or two, but you ate the whole box. And so my memory generates a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind to say, danger, stop. You won't be able to have one or two. You'll eat the whole box. Remember, you'll hate yourself. You'll gain weight. You'll be miserable. Don't do it. Except unlike with cats, the bridge between my memory and my conscious mind was broken. I could not remember any warnings or even my past experience. I had no defense. So for Bill, he wanted to take a drink and that strong warning, alcohol is bad for you, it couldn't make it across to his conscious mind to stop him. Strong warnings of other people never did anything for us. So here's our friend Bill, he goes to war, he comes back from war and he goes to law school and what happens to him? He says he was drinking. At one of the finals, he was too drunk to think or write. Now, I went to law school, and in most classes in law school, 100% of your grade is based just on how you do on that one exam. So this is really important. So I would say that number three, what Bill had that didn't work, was necessity. Bill needed to be sober when he took his final exam, but he couldn't. Necessity doesn't help. Um, for a normal person, it would. My husband went to the doctor a number of years ago, and the doctor said, you have high blood pressure, you need to lose 15 pounds. And my husband just like said, okay. And he came home, and he just cut back, and he lost the weight. And he's kept it off for 20 years because necessity worked for him. But for people like us, it doesn't work. Um, so Bill finishes law school, says, yeah, law's not for me. I like business better. Um, so there he is. Life is really good for a while. And then what happens? The stock market crashes. Things get bad. But he's like, yeah, no problem. Um, I called a friend in Montreal. I went to Canada. So again, he's trying a geographic. But he's able to stop for short periods of time until page five, where he says, liquor ceased to be a luxury it became a necessity. See, at some point, maybe some of us could have stopped. Some of us can think back to a time where I could have stopped if I wanted to. I personally can't. I remember when I was four years old, obsessing about the snacks they were serving in nursery school. Um, but here's Bill, and he says, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. And once we cross the line where it's a necessity, we can't save ourselves anymore. We need to be rescued. It's like we're in quicksand or an undertow. We can't rescue ourselves anymore. And he says things got worse. He loses his house. I mean, that is pretty bad. Imagine just doing something, eating so much that you lose your house. But Bill, ever the optimist, says, but then I got this great business opportunity. Things are going to work. And then it says he went on a prodigious bender. I don't know the word prodigious. I think it means really bad. So he went on a really bad bender, and he lost that business opportunity. 
so here he is. He wakes up. He says, I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. So he knew his alcoholic threshold, which was zero. He wasn't saying, maybe I can have two drinks and stop. He knew it was zero. He said, I was through. I had written lots of sweet promises before, but my wife happily observed this time I meant business, and so I did. So the fourth thing he tried was commitment, really meaning business. Well, that doesn't help, right? Think of our poor cancer patient example whose cancer cells are multiplying and says, this time I'm committed to making my cancer cells stop multiplying. Our hearts would break because we would know that no matter how sincere that person was, she couldn't do it on her own. She doesn't have the power. Commitment alone doesn't do it because lack of commitment isn't our problem. Our problem is lack of power. So what happens to poor Bill? He does mean business, but he does keep drinking. And he says, I began to wonder if I was crazy, bottom of page five, for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that, lack of perspective, thinking I can do things that time and time again, I should see that I can't do. Right? I still sometimes think I have the knees of a 20-year-old. So I'll go to the gym and I'll do really heavy squats and leg presses and I'll come home and I'll need to ice my knees and not work out a while because I'm not 22, I'm 62, and I can't work out like I'm 22. So sometimes I'll admit I have a lack of perspective at the gym, but it's not dire. I rest my knees for a few days and I'm fine. But a lack of perspective is a hallmark of any addict, and it is dire. So what happens to Bill? One day he goes to a cafe to use a telephone. Not really smart. It's like someone who's newly abstinent walking into a haagen because she's lost her cell phone and going to use the phone that's all the way in the back after she has to pass through all those racks of ice cream. Um, no surprise, Bill got drunk. But being a good addict, what does he tell himself? I'll drink, but I'll manage better next time. I may as well get good and drunk now because next time I'll do better. So number five is what I actually call the pillow cure. I can do whatever I want now because I'll be able to start tomorrow. Eight hours with my head on a pillow, and that will suddenly, miraculously, give me the power I didn't have before. So the pillow cure or the I'll start tomorrow cure, it doesn't work. What happened the next day? That magic pillow didn't work, and Bill says the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. You know, normally, remorse, horror, or hopelessness will convince us we shouldn't do something again. Um, I grew up in Miami, and I had the experience of going to the beach and not putting on sunscreen because I just wanted a really good tan. And then to my um, chagrin, my horror, you might say, instead of a cute little tan, the skin on my face was peeling off. It was bright red, and it did not look very good at all. So what happened? The next time I went to the beach, I put on sunscreen because I didn't want to go through that again. But for an alcoholic or a compulsive eater, remorse doesn't help. And that's number six, remorse, feeling strong guilt. It doesn't do it, right? Who of us has ever said, oh, I feel guilty that I ate someone else's food. I think I'll stop binging. 
um, then I'll be able to stop. That didn't happen with me. I remember eating my roommate's food, going out to eat the replacement, and eating the replacement before I could get it back. Strong feelings of guilt, hopelessness, horror at what I'd done. It doesn't do it. And by the way, the only time hopelessness is good is if when we're hopeless and we feel we're hopeless for good, we're presented with the real solution. But plain old remorse, horror and hopelessness, that usually just ends up with self-pity. And as my friend Roxanne told me once, self-pity parties usually end with a cake. So two more years he goes on like this. He steals from his wife. So here's a man, he lost his house. His, he can't work. His wife has to work. And he steals from her. The self-hate he must have felt, that didn't matter. He tries all sorts of things. He goes to a hospital. And he comes out, page seven. He says, understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I have no idea what that means about a goose hanging high. I assume it means things were just fine. So Bill says, I went to town regularly. I even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. So here's two more things Bill tried. Seven, desire. And number eight, self-knowledge. Number seven, desire. Bill had a desire, but a desire for people like us without spiritual help doesn't work, right? Anyone with cancer has a desire for her cancer cells to stop multiplying. Desire alone won't do it. And then Bill said, this was the answer, self-knowledge. Well, self-knowledge doesn't work, right? I could know I had cancer. Maybe I could even know how exactly I got it. People generally don't. But let's say I said, "Mm, I lived near a toxic radiation waste site dump for 10 years, and that's how I got it. Okay, so what? Now I know I have it and why I have it and how I got it. It doesn't make it go away. Self-knowledge doesn't help. And with food, I could know all my binge foods, all my trigger foods. Well, if that was enough, we'd need a one-step program. It would be step one, make a list of all your binge foods, your trigger foods, your red light foods, and don't have them. Um, It doesn't work. And that's why we need 12 steps. Because again, our problem isn't lack of knowledge. It's lack of power. So page eight, we see again, Bill saying, along with remorse, horror, and hopelessness, he's added to this really sad mix, loneliness, despair, and self-pity. And how does Bill describe his bottom? Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. And he still couldn't stop because here's why, number nine, a first step alone does nothing. I can admit anything. I can admit I'm powerless over food and my life is unmanageable. That admission gets me in the door if I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get better, but that admission by itself does nothing, right? Imagine going to a doctor, the doctor showing me the scan that proves I have cancer, and I say, oh my gosh, now that I see the scan, I admit it, I've got cancer and that makes my life unmanageable. And the doctor's saying, great, Janet, now that you've admitted it, now go home and make your cancer cells stop multiplying wouldn't work with cancer, and it didn't work with me for food. And it didn't work for Bill. So 
he goes to the hospital again, basically to rehab, and then he leaves. And he says, trembling, I stepped from the hospital, a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. And then he drank again. So number 10 is fear. A doctor telling us if we don't lose weight, we're going to have a heart attack, that doesn't do it. A woman once told me at an OA meeting, um, she was diabetic, and she said her doctor had told her if she didn't stop eating compulsively and lose some weight, it would affect her eyes and her kidneys. When I met her, she had a seeing eye dog because she was blind, and she was on dialysis waiting for a kidney transplant. Fear doesn't do it. Who of us ever said, oh, doctor, thank you for that information that I'm going to have a heart attack if I don't stop. I'm so glad you told me. Now I'm really scared. Okay, now I'll go home and stick to my diet. That never happens for people like us because fear doesn't do it. Remember, this big book describes fear as an evil and corroding thread. Evil, it isn't from God, so it can't help um, so here's poor Bill. He has tried everything, and he realizes the gravity of his situation. He says, everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. But then look at the turn of the story. He says, how dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch, my last binge. I was soon to be catapulted. By the way, I love that word catapulted. Bill doesn't say, I took myself. I healed myself. He says, I was catapulted. I was rescued. He says, I was catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. And that reminds me of like the Wizard of Oz where it goes from black and white to color. Well, I got to tell you, when we get into recovery, life becomes in color. Um, so at the top of that page, he was talking about he had loneliness, despair, and self-pity. And what does he say he gets in recovery? Happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Because just like this illness is progressive, recovery is progressive. So once we get into recovery and start living this way of life, it just keeps getting better and better. So let's find out how it happened, how God launched his search and rescue mission for Bill Wilson. So it's November, Bill's drinking in his kitchen, and the phone rings. And it's an old friend he used to drink with asking if he can come over. So Bill was living in New York at this time. His friend did not live in New York. It had, in fact, it had been years since they had seen each other. But Ebby just happened, I say with air quotes, just happened to be in New York, and he just happened to call Bill when Bill was sitting in his kitchen drinking in despair to say, hey, Bill, can I come over? And Bill's like, sure. He didn't care about Ebby. He just thought, we could drink together. This is great. I don't have to drink all by myself. This is an oasis. It's wonderful. So remember, Bill was drinking and planning on still drinking when Ebby came. And Ebby didn't knock on his door and say, Bill, you reek of alcohol, you're drinking. I'll come back when you have a certain amount of time sober. And he didn't wait for Bill to search him out when Bill was desperately wanting to get better. And by the way, Bill didn't require that of Dr. Bob when he met him. Dr. Bob was drunk and planning on staying drunk, and he talked to him anyway. 
So Ebby went in and talked to him, looked at him, and Bill said, something's different. He invited him in, gave him a drink, and said, here, have a drink, Ebby. And Ebby said, no, no, thank you. And Bill says, okay, what's got into him? He wasn't himself. He doesn't look like himself. He doesn't act like himself. But of course not. A butterfly doesn't look like a caterpillar. Ebby had been transformed. See, God isn't in the fix it up a little bit business. God is in the transformation business. Caterpillar to, caterpillar to butterfly stuff. And Ebby had been transformed. So Bill says, okay, Ebby, what's going on? And Ebby just says, I've got religion. No sugarcoating God. I've got religion. So let's be clear what the definition, definition of religion is. It really doesn't have to do with churches or clergymen. Um, the dictionary definition is the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God. Isn't that beautiful? Um, so when we say God as I understand him, it's not doorknob as I understand him or light bulb as I understand him. Because the definition is the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God. Now, I might conceive of God differently than you conceive of God, and that's fine. But I think we can agree that a light bulb is not a superhuman controlling power that can be personal to us. And I certainly can't worship a doorknob. Um, so Ebby did not sugarcoat God. He didn't dummy it down so that it would appeal to Bill. He just said, I've got religion. And Bill says, I was aghast. Like, what the heck? He was an alcoholic crackpot. Now he's a religious crackpot. But whatever, let him rant. My gin's going to last longer than his preaching. But Ebby didn't preach or rant. He just quietly said he'd been drunk, so drunk that he was about to be committed for alcoholism. And two men had ap appeared in court and persuaded the judge to suspend his commitment. And one of the men who persuaded the judge was a recovered alcoholic, and the judge just happened to be his uncle. And they said, judge, or uncle, give us a little time. We know we can help him. We know what will help. A combination of two things, a simple religious idea. There's that word, imagine they use that word religious in court. A simple religious idea Again, the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God, a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. Do God's will as best we can and trust him with the outcome, clean house, clean up our past, help others. And they said that was two months ago and the result was self-evident. It worked. Two months. I know I've heard some people say, well, my sponsor said I can't be absent. Um, can't sponsor until I've been absent X number of days. They didn't go by that here. They went by, have you gone through the process? Have you gone through the steps? Um, early on, they didn't have 12 steps. They did things in the Oxford group, and then they had six steps for a while. But had you gone through the basic process of surrendering your life to God, clearing up the wreckage of your past, committing to help others, and living a life of prayer, meditation, and service? And it worked. Fast forward only 60 days, and here's Ebby thinking, who can I help? Um, I'm in New York on business. Let me call Bill. 
So anyone who's binging now, if you start working this today, you can be recovered and helping others real soon. You can be knocking on someone else's door carrying a message of hope. You can be the butterfly someone's looking at. So Bill reports Ebby came to pass his experience on to him if he cared to have it. And Bill says, I was shocked, but I was interested. And then here's what he says, top of page 10. Certainly I was interested. I had to be for I was hopeless. So if someone comes around and they don't feel hopeless, they're more like, yeah, I'd like to lose 10 pounds to look good for my high school reunion so that boy who rejected me when I was 16 will feel bad. Not that that ever happened to me. Um, They're probably not going to be interested because this program is a lot of work. But when someone is hopeless, we actually want them to feel hopeless. We don't want to tell people, oh, don't worry, it'll get better. You know what? It doesn't get better. I was going to meetings, um, and when I first started, I was throwing up maybe twice a week. Six and a half years later, I was in Overeaters Anonymous, never left, going to meetings, had sponsors, did a bunch of work. Unfortunately, none of that work included going through the 12 steps the way it was outlined in the book. But I was throwing up then up to six times a day and needed major surgery on my esophagus. It didn't get better just by going to meetings. It got worse. So here's Bill, and Eddie's talking to him about God. And Bill says, well, I always believed in a power greater than myself. I often pondered these things. So he wasn't an atheist or an agnostic. But he says, when it came to a God personal to me, who was love, superhuman strength and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut. So he believed in God, but not a personal God. So he was what I would call like a practical atheist, a practical agnostic. And that's how I was. I believed in God, but it made no difference in my life. I mean, now I believe there's a king in England but it makes no difference to my life. I suppose if I move to Britain, it might make a difference, but right here in America, doesn't make a difference that I believe there is a king in England. And I was like Bill. I believed in God, but I wasn't really interested in anything he had to say to me. In fact, I didn't think he would have anything to say to me, and it just wasn't important to me. But how did Ebby describe God? Love, superhuman strength, and direction. We need all of this. If God is just power and direction, but doesn't love me, how am I ever going to feel safe with this God? And if God is love and direction, but isn't powerful enough to overcome this illness, that doesn't help me. And if there's a God who loves me and is powerful, but doesn't give me any guidance, isn't involved in my life, that doesn't help me either. But we have a God who's all three, and we have access to this God. And Bill hears that, but he talks about the role that religion played in his own life. And he said, yeah, for me, I adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too too difficult. The rest I disregarded. And that's how I used religion. And if I'm going to be honest, how I used the 12 steps for a while. I did the parts that were convenient and not too hard. And so Bill's with Ebby, and he started doing some soul searching. He's thinking, okay, I want to believe in God, but there's some things in my way, right? There's legitimate things we need to deal with. Remember, he'd been to war. So he said the war, the burning, the burning. I can only imagine what that means, like burning. 
seeing like, imagine the horror of watching a town burn down, watching people who'd been in fires. He said, the burnings, the chicanery, these things made me sick. And he says, judging from what I've seen in Europe and since, the power of God in human affairs is negligible. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss. So Bill had witnessed a lot of calamity and he was stuck. Like, why is there all this suffering? And he earnestly questioned it, right? It's legitimate. We shouldn't just tell people, oh, just believe in God. There's some things that are sometimes sticky. Um, what did Ebby do? Well, he didn't do what I probably would have done, like getting into a big theological discussion about does God cause suffering or does he just allow it? Yeah, Ebby doesn't do any of that. He just says, Bill, I don't know. All I know is God is good, and when I surrendered my life to him, the obsession to drink was just taken out of me. And for me, that's how I can deal with certain things that I don't understand. Like, why does God allow human trafficking? Um, it breaks my heart. If I were God, I would smite all those traffickers with a plague of boils. Um, and more close to home, why did my dad suffer with Parkinson's? And then after my mom spent years nursing him to health um, or nursing him until he died, why did she get stricken with Alzheimer's? I don't know. And I have to be content with not knowing this side of heaven. Hopefully then I will. But for now, I just tell myself God's got a plan and I don't need to understand it. And what does Ebby do? He simply tells Bill that God did for him what he couldn't do for himself. He says he had admitted defeat, and after admitting defeat, he had been raised from the dead, right? Isn't that us in the illness? We're like walking dead people. Ebby said he was suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. He was rescued, rescued from the scrap heap to a life of meaning. And I think that's really important for us. Sometimes we get rescued from but we don't let God take us to, to that life of meaning, of service, of helping others. We say, I don't want to help others. I'm scared to sponsor. We're rescued from the scrap heap in order to be taken to a life of self-sacrificing love and service for others. And Abby says, had this power originated in him? It hadn't. Um, I mean, he said there was no power in him. And right now I'm sitting in a room with a light on. Um, I'm not electricity. I don't generate electricity myself, but I can access it. And that's how it is with us and God. We're not God ourselves. We don't have the power ourselves, but we can access it. And because Bill knows he's hopeless, he's open-minded. And he says, maybe these religious people are right after all. Because remember, after all, Ebby isn't the same Ebby. And he says, and I love this line, my ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. And great tidings just means good news. Miracle across the kitchen table. When we think of miracles, I mean, for me, I think of things like Moses parting the Red Sea, and Bill was saying, yeah, that's all in the past. That's good. Great for Sunday school. But here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table, a man who was once one way and is now another. That's the kind of miracle I can be interested in. 
And really, that is our only solution. Um, there's a list of 10 things Bill tried that didn't work, and there's only one that did, a miracle. Um, a miracle is defined as a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific law and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. Um, the way I like to think of it is like God coming down out of heaven, breaking into our human hearts and rewiring them so that we are different people. Um, so Bill sees a miracle in his kitchen. He sees Ebby was totally different. On page 12, he says that Ebby's roots grasped a new soil. It's like he had a root transplant. He became a different person. But he's still not sure, right? Bill's a little prickly about God. And so Ebby says, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And he says, that did it. All I had to do was be willing. Nothing more was required of me to make a beginning. So he was willing to believe there was a God. Okay, what does that mean in practical terms? How can I be willing to believe? And I think it means something like this. We can say to God, God, I don't know if you exist, but I hope you do. And if you do exist, I don't know if you care about me, but I hope you do. Like these people say, I really need some help. And in the meantime, until I know what's, if you really exist, I'm going to live my life as if you do and live my life the way I think you would want me to. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to help others. And I'm going to hope and pray that you are real. And if you are, please, please help me. And please show me that you're there and that you care. The worst that happens is nothing. You're talking to dead air. But I believe that a prayer like that can set things in motion um, and that that prayer may cause God to say, okay, my next search and rescue mission is for you. Um, so willing. We can be willing to believe that there's a God who can restore us to sanity. And Bill says, I was convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. Well, enough to do what? I think it means enough to do the work, to do these 12 steps, not just sit there and say, okay, God, I'm willing to believe you exist. Now come out of your bottle where you live, be my genie, do whatever I want, and then go back to your bottle. Mm -mm. No, we have to be willing to do the work. And how does Bill describe it when he accepts that, when he surrenders to that? He says, at long last, I saw, I felt, I believed. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. He says, before that, he had been blind. What had blinded him? pride and prejudice. That is what blocked him. That's what blocks us from seeing God. What's pride? Thinking too much of myself, like I can handle things on my own, that I'm better than everyone else. Thinking too much of myself or thinking of myself too much. Just spending too much time thinking about me and prejudice. Thinking too little of others and thinking of others too little. Too little time spent thinking about others, and when I do, thinking that they're not worth much of my time anyway. Pride and prejudice. And Bill says, yeah, when I was younger, I needed and wanted God, and he came, right, when he needed and wanted him. I sensed his presence, but it was blotted out by worldly clamors. So if we want to look at why are we maybe blocked from God, 
we can look at the worldly clamors in our lives. Are we spending too much time thinking about worldly things, our clothes, our money, our jobs? Um, so different things, worldly clamors get in our way. Instead, we should be spending time with our loving creator. So then Bill goes to the hospital. Why? After all that, he realizes there's God. Why? And he says, I showed signs of delirium tremors. That's why he went to the hospital, because it was physically dangerous for him not to withdraw from alcohol without medical help. And he says there, right in the hospital, I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him to do with me as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. So he basically said, God, I believe you're good. Or at least you can't mess up my life any worse than I've messed it up myself. Take all of me, not just my alcohol, or for us, our food. Take all of me. I place myself 100% under your care and direction. And then what did he do? He cleared away the wreckage of his past. And look how he describes it. I ruthlessly faced my sins. So he recovered in the Oxford group. They called them sins. We call them character defects. Same thing. But he said he was ruthless. He was hard on himself. Being hard on ourselves sometimes gets a bad rap. Sometimes our therapists say, oh, don't be so hard on yourselves. Or we'll talk about perfectionism. So we'll call someone and do a 10-step and say, oh, you know, it was my perfectionism. And it's a subtle way sometimes of getting our friends to say, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. It's like, I ate a little bit off my food plan, but I don't want to be a perfectionist. Mm, we should be hard on ourselves. Um, he says, I ruthlessly face everything. It's okay to be hard on ourselves in facing what we did wrong because we know that once we ruthlessly face these things and go to God and ask him to remove it and we make our amends, it's done and we're good. We're good with God and we're good with our fellows. There doesn't have to be any shame or any guilt, but we have to be ruthless because when we push things down, what does our book tell us? That leads to fear and tension and that leads to more drinking. So Bill says he was ruthless, faced things, made his amends, and then he just didn't drink anymore. And he gives us this little piece of advice. He says, okay, I've got this new God consciousness within. That's the promise of this program, right? We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. Common sense becomes uncommon sense. That as a result of working this program, we get that. Um, and then he tells us how to handle doubt. When we're not sure of anything, he says, I was to sit quietly when in doubt asking. Asking means praying. Asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as God would have me. And I have to think, when I'm not sure what to do, do I really do that? You know, this really calls me up short. Is the first thing I do just sit down and say, God, please give me direction, guidance, and strength to do. I'm more apt to pick up the phone and call a few people. So this reminds me what this program tells me I need to do. And then Ebby tells him that when you do these things, you'll enter upon a new relationship with your creator and have the elements of a way of living which answer all your problems. And I think that's really the mission statement of this book, to get a new relationship with our creator, 
where he's God, I'm not, and I'm surrendered to him. And by working this program, I get the elements of a way of living that answer all my problems, my marriage problems, my work problems, my kid problems, my health problems, all my problems. This program teaches me how to deal with them. And so Bill tries to sum up what he thinks is necessary to recover. Belief in the power of God, again, not the existence of God, the power of God, plus willingness, honesty, and humility. These are all essential. If I just have willingness, honesty, and humility without the power of God, then I'm just doing self-improvement work. And I didn't have the power to improve myself one iota. I couldn't stop eating on my own, and I couldn't stop being a mean, nasty person on my own. So he says, it's simple, but not easy, right? Our book tells us that, that it's simple, but it isn't always easy, that we have to pay a price, the destruction of self-centeredness. Chapter five of our big book says the root of this illness is selfishness and self-centeredness, and the root has to be destroyed. Remember when Bill saw Ebby, he says his roots grasped a new soil. Um, may sound corny, but to me it's like we have to have a root transplant, be transplanted from the garden of self into the garden of loving and surrendering to God and helping our fellows. So Bill's still in the hospital, and he says the thought came. I love how he says that the thought came. Already God's directing his thought. So it shows we should be trying to spend time with God right from the beginning, not wait till we're at step 11. Prayer, meditation, connecting with God, talking with God. That's really what prayer is, talking with God. God's directing his thoughts. And he says, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might work with others. Well, little did he know that shortly after this, I, I don't know, I guess it was about six months or so, I'm not sure, wasn't real long. He just happened to be in Ohio on business, just like Ebby had just happened to be in New York on business. And Bill was in Ohio on business, and then the thought came to him that instead of going down the hall one way to a bar, he should make a phone call, which led him to Dr. Bob. He helped Dr. Bob. They, in turn, helped others. They went to, um, to help another guy named Bill, who was alcoholic number three, and on and on and on down to here together on a Sunday morning. And I want to highlight the bottom of page 14. I think it's one of the most critical paragraphs in the book. It says, faith without works is dead, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic and the compulsive eater. Um, for if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through, and if I were to fill in the blanks, I would have thought it would say through prayer and meditation, but that's not what it says. It says through work and self-sacrifice for others. If he didn't enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he couldn't survive the certain trials and low spots and would surely drink again, guaranteed to drink. That tells me if I go back into the food, I shouldn't necessarily say, um, I don't have a first step. I haven't admitted I'm a compulsive eater. I may have admitted I'm a compulsive eater, but I'm not doing any self-sacrifice for other people. It tells me no matter what step I'm on, that I will surely drink or eat again if I don't do that. That's how I have to enlarge my spiritual life, work and self-sacrifice for others. 
earth people who don't have this illness may be able to enlarge their spiritual lives other ways. And believe me, I am not putting down prayer and meditation. I spent about an hour in prayer and meditation this morning. Um, it's so essential for our spiritual lives. But we are people who, for whatever reason, grow spiritually for work and self-sacrifice. Um, so Bill says, I did this work, but sometimes I was plagued by ways of self-pity and resentment. So it doesn't mean once we get through step 12, we're magically going to feel on cloud nine all the time. We're still going to get resentful. We're still going to get self-pity. But here's the thing. When we have resentment, we should, as we progress, be able to bounce back from them, resolve them more quickly. That's how we can know if we're doing well in recovery, if our bounce back period is quicker. If instead of being in self-pity for eight hours, I can look and say, oh, you know, yeah, yesterday I was in self-pity, but it was only three hours. And then next month at, you know, two hours. And then hopefully, you know, we get it down to 10 minutes. But Bill says when other measures failed, Work with another alcoholic would save the day. It's a design for living that works in rough going. Um, that's just how we were made, that helping others makes us feel better. And he just says a few final things. He says, the joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. So they're telling us we can be happy even when things are hard. Bad situations, hard situations in our lives do not have to define us and to dictate our happiness. And they say there's scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome among us. That's what's so beautiful about this fellowship. If we have a problem, there's probably somebody in this fellowship who's had the same problem and probably has mastered it and can help you along so that when you master it, you can help someone else along. Page 16, last page of this chapter, he says an alcoholic in his cups is an unlovely creature. True but our job is to love them anyway. That's the measure of my spiritual experience. I can tell how rotten I'm doing when I look at someone who's struggling and don't feel love for them. That's when I realize there's still a long way to go in my own spiritual development. But our job is to love them anyway, and that means self-sacrifice, care, make the person feel cared for. And he says recovery is fun. Yes, we're earnest, but it should be fun. We shouldn't be showing up to meetings or work or family events with long faces like, oh, I'm so busy helping people, I didn't have time to take a shower. No, it's fun. Life is fun. Um, but he says, underneath, faith has to work 24 hours. We don't have to look any further for utopia because we have it. Utopia is an ideal place. And he ends by saying that each day, my friend's simple talk in our kitchen when he, when he was drinking, multiplies itself in a widening circle of, of peace on earth and goodwill to men. God sent a recovered friend to him. And Bill followed a set of simple but not easy guidelines that allowed God to come in and do a miracle of healing. Because at the end of the day, what worked for Bill and worked for all of us hopeless compulsive eaters is a miracle. God breaking into our human existence and rewiring our hearts so that the illness can't live there. And, you know, we might say, well, yeah, but I'm the one who does these 12 steps. I'm the one who does this work. Well, let's say there's a flood in beautiful New Jersey, and my house gets flooded, and the sheriff's coming around with a bullhorn saying, the helicopters are coming. 
get to the roof. So it is my job to, let's be corny again, climb the 12 steps that lead up to my roof so that the helicopter rescued me. Sure, I climbed those 12 steps, but let me never be so arrogant as to say that I rescued myself. So Bill just closes um, saying that his friend's simple talk, the miracle across his kitchen table, multiplies in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And I am just so blessed and grateful to be part of that circle. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you very much for methodically taking us through Bill's story today and lining it up with your own experience. It was a lovely journey to walk with you. Thank you so much for your recovery and for the time that you offer to a vision for you and these particular teachings that we save on our archive. Thank you. Thank you so much, Janet. We will ask Janet for her contact information at the conclusion of this meeting. So please stay with us to get more of that information later on. The share ID number for today, Sunday, April 16th, oh my goodness gracious, April 30th, 2023 is 20209, The lines are now open for questions. If you have a question for Janet, please press star 1 to unmute your phone. Um, for your first name, the first letter of your last name. And once you've asked your question, please immediately remute your mic by pressing star 1. Who would like to ask a question this morning? Brenda A. New York. Brenda A. Hey, good morning. Basha S. in in Israel. Would you spell your first name, please? Basha, B-A-S-H-A. Thank you. And S. from Israel. Okay. Gotcha. Thank Mary you. Mary Lee R. in Eugene, Oregon. Mary Lee, hey, good morning. Thank you. Judith S.P. in Maryland. Judith S.P. Maryland. Good morning. Let's start with that lineup. That sounds great. Thank you so much. We have Brenda, Basha, Mary Lee, and Judith. Your question this morning, Brenda A., star one. Good morning, Janet. Thank you for your honest and humble share, and thank you for everyone on this line. Janet, my question is, after you struggled for so long, what was the turning point that got you to work the steps, be abstinent, and recover? Okay. Um, oh, I love that. So I was at I was at a meeting, um, and it was filled with recovered people, and I'd been going for a while. And um, I picked a sponsor who I knew would let me get away with nothing. Um, and this sponsor's requirements were really hard. And I just said, I don't care. Like, if, if I'm told to pack up and move to another state, I'll do it because I was hopeless. So I think um, I became willing to go to any length. And I've heard it said that willingness allows grace to enter. And then I went out to the parking lot after the meeting and I said a prayer. I said, God, I've always had fixed ideas of what you were like and how to worship you. I'm willing to admit it's all wrong and start over and let you show me what you're like and how to worship you. So I basically gave my life to God. And I think another thing that was so critical is one of the things my new sponsor told me 
was that I had to be honest. And I'm someone who was like a compulsive liar. I made up rape stories. I was, I was like a big time liar. And he said, um, no lying or I will not sponsor you. And so I became scrupulous about being honest. I mean, if I woke up at like 629, I wouldn't say I woke up at 630. I was, and if I caught myself in a lie, I would stop right away and say, wait, what I just said, that wasn't honest. Because I really believe in the book says that if we are not honest, we are not going to recover. We could be going, do all these steps, um, do everything else, spend time, um, do, go to 100 meetings, sponsor 100 people. If we are living with dishonesty in our life, we will not recover. So I get it was willingness to go to any length surrender to what I believed God would have me do and a commitment to honesty is what changed things for me. Thanks. Thank you very much for the question. Brenda A. Next up is Basha S. from Israel. Then Mary Lee, you will follow Basha. Good morning. Star one, please. Hi, thank you so much, Janet. This is Basha in Israel. I'm a grateful compulsive reader. Um, Okay. So, my question sort of has two parts. So <laughs> the first part is, if, um, I mean, it's really similar to the last one. So if you want to brush over this, that's fine. Um, people who are struggling in the food, like chronic relapse, what um, do you have any like um, experience to share with that person? And the other thing is, if somebody is in struggling with food, how can that? How can somebody struggling with food be? Um, be of service and like try to use that the the tool of being of service and carrying the message even if you're struggling that's my question thanks okay so first I would say there's a difference between relapse and ongoing non-recovery I had ongoing non-recovery for about my first seven years in OA I never got more than two weeks of abstinence together relapse is when someone is in recovery and then goes back to an illness state. So I'm not sure which one you're you're talking about. Um, so I will. So I'll, I guess I'll address them both. Relapse, like if you're in recovery and then go back. It's, there's certain things that lead us to it. I call it pitfalls. And I actually um, did a recording on that, a podcast on Vision for You, like pitfalls leading to recovery. There, the book's filled with landmines of things that can lead us back into the illness. Um, so I would, I guess, direct you there. Ongoing non-recovery, I would say that the person has never worked the steps properly. And I would advise that person to get with someone who's strong in recovery and talk with them so that person can get in the weeds and see, okay, are you rigorously honest in all your life? Um, or the, are you willing to do the work? Like some people say they're willing, but they're really not. And so, so someone who could help you an, like analyze it. Um, and then, of course, if you want to, then find someone who can take you through the steps and not enable you. For your second question, how can you be of service? I don't believe you really can be of service to someone who's still another compulsive eater unless it's by way of giving rides to meetings. Um, things like that. If you if you have local meetings, then it's easier. Then you can be the one who gets it, who shows up early to set up the chairs or you know breaks down the chairs. But there's tons of other ways to be of service to people. Um, I've told people go to the parking lot of a 
Target store and put away carts for 15 minutes. You know, just do something for your neighbors. Look for the people who are in your life and do things for them, preferably that they won't know about. Um, so I think we, we have to start there. Um, someone once told me she couldn't think of a way to give, so she went out and gave blood. Um, we can clean out our closets and go take the clothes to a homeless shelter. But as soon as we start getting recovery and we have something to share, like um, if someone's on step three, they can certainly help someone on step, someone who's on step one or step two. So I hope that answered all your questions. Thank you, Basha S. from Israel. Mary Lee R., you're up next from Oregon, and then Judith, you'll be after Mary Lee. Good morning, Mary Lee. Good morning, Melanie. Good morning, Janet. Um, boy, you've answered um, two questions I had, and I really appreciate the honest. And so a que another question that's been lurking is if you have this sort of hot white connection with a, a divine director, a higher power, and then it dims, Boy, you just gave a whole bunch of suggestions for bringing it back alight, but does that question make any sense? So if I'm understanding you right, you're saying that it's possible for a person to feel close and connected to God and then just not feel it. And, Absolutely. You know, okay, I think like the spiritual literature of probably every religion probably talks about that and the experience of everyone um, yes. So I would say what keeps us going is not the feeling. Some people have the, have the feeling. I mean, I have a friend in recovery. She hears God talking to her. She'll ask a question and she'll like have a conversation just like, you know, I have a conversation with my husband. Um, I don't hear God like that. Uh, for me, it comes a different way. I'll get, um, it's almost like a thought comes in a thought comes into my head that wasn't there before and it's like oh yeah there it is um and there are times i feel more of god's presence and there's times i don't but it's a commitment it's a rock solid knowledge that there is a god that he rescued me from the pit of compulsive eating that he's got my back and that ultimately he's going to work out everything for my good so if I know that, and I can remind myself, right? That's why we have grad, why we um, we practice gratitude. We pray gratitudes to remind ourselves of how good God is, to remind ourselves of what He's done. Then it doesn't matter how I feel my connection is. I know it. Just like, you know, I I know. I'm trying to think of an example. Like I said, I know there's a king in England. Um, I don't experience a relationship, but I know he's there. And I suppose if I lived in England or Britain, um, I would know the security. It's like, okay, there's a king on the throne. He's going to take care of certain things. So even when I don't feel it, I know it. So I hope that helps. Thank you so much, Mary Lee R. from Oregon for your question this morning. Judith SP, you're up now this morning with your question and then we'll open it up. It looks like there'll still be more time for more questions. Hey Judith. Hi everyone. Excuse me. My name is Judith S. P. from Maryland. Truly grateful to be here this morning. 
in recovery for today. Thank you, Melanie, for your ongoing wisdom and leadership, and Janet for a great uh, in-depth, honest review of Bill's story. I have two questions. One is, from my understanding, and I think you referred to it, Abby just, quote-unquote, happened to be in New York and came to see Bill, and uh, Bill just happened to go to Ohio on a business trip. And uh, Bill and then Bill and Bob and others would go to hospitals, would go to different places, trying to reach out a hand to those that are still suffering. I also understand, and then I'll wrap this part up, that the big book doesn't say sponsor, sponsee, anywhere in the 164. Um, My question on this piece is, um, most of the time I hear, you know, sponsors will put their name at the end of the meeting or put it in the chat. And it seems to be more of the sponsee needs to be in the position of reaching out to the sponsor. And sometimes I think about the fact that people are so desperate and sick in the food and confused. How the heck do they know who might be the right person or blah, blah, blah. So my question is, is there more fluidity from your understanding on sponsors reaching out to sponsees? as well as waiting for the sponsee. My second question, and I hope this is clear, how do you practice this in all your affairs? Um, Bill and Bob, I know so for Bill, integrated his whole life into recovery. So there wasn't fellowship and experiences in AA, and then his family worked jobs. He basically became all in one, as I know several of the other stories uh, help me understand. How do you practice this and take it into family and friends and the supermarket clerk? Um, How do you take that portability? So with that, I'll pass, and thank you so much for all your responses. Okay. So as to the first question, sponsors and sponsees, um, of course, it's a little different now because they didn't have anonymous programs. But here's what I would say that I hope is helpful. That it's, so if someone is struggling and let's say they put their name out and five people reach out to them and say, I'm, a, I'm an available sponsor, or they take five names and call five people. Someone who wants to recover has the right to vet a potential sponsor. Just like the book tells us that a sponsor should vet a sponsee to make sure the person is willing to go to any length, a sponsee gets to vet the sponsor and to just say, you know, to hear how that person worked the program, how that person worked the 12 steps, what their connection with God is like, how, just like the second question you asked me, how do they practice this on a daily basis? to see that that person has what they want. Now, it shouldn't be, well, what are you gonna make me do? Are you gonna make me do two phone calls a day or three? Because if it's three, I'm not in. But does that person have what I want as far as spirituality? And that's what I did. I picked someone who I was, who I knew was gonna be tough on me and was tough on me, but I was just so desperate and I knew this person knew what recovery was. So that's the first question. The second question, on a daily basis, 
So the book says that we all spend much of our time in this activity, of much of our spare time. So if I subtract um, my time at work and my time with my family obligations and, you know, taking care of my health, and um, then how much spare time do I have? And I should be spending much of that helping others. Um, and as far as what does much mean, I think we all can go to God and get our own individual definition of much. But I think it means if I'm watching as much Netflix as I would want to, I'm not spending much. Um, and then in all my affairs, how do I practice it? Well, I spend time in prayer and meditation with God. I don't lie. I look to be kind and I look to be helpful. I guess that's the best way to sum it up. Thanks. Thank you very much for your question. Judith SP from Maryland. Are there any other burning questions out there this morning? If you have a question on your mind, like Alexis your first Beth name, the first from New Jersey. Alexis, gotcha. Dana P. Dana P. From California, I believe. Star one, anyone else with a question this morning for Janet? Alexis, do you want to um, proceed with your question? And we'll see what comes up in a little bit for others. Yes, my question for Janet is, um, my abstinence has changed through the years. Has yours remained the same? You know, do you eat the same things that you ate when you first became abstinent every day? Um. No, my food plan has changed, but but I will tell you, I never change it on my own. It's always um, with the guidance of a sponsor. Great. Thank you so much for the question. Dana P., your question. Thank you, Sarah John. Lee. Um, thanks, Melanie. Dana P. here. Um, and Janet, wow. <laughs> Brilliant! I really enjoyed your um, your uh, share there with uh, Bill. My question is around uh, what you said about abstinence and um, starting to work with somebody. And yes, clearly Bill was quite drunk when Evie came to him, and it's, it seems controversial to me because I hear a lot of you know people saying you have to be abstinent for this amount of time because the doctor's opinion says. And um, I get a lot of people calling me and saying that they're not abstinent and or I'm abstinent this amount of time. Um, so how does that look for you in practice as a sponsor um, on a daily basis when people call you with a variety of different, um, quote, unquote, abstinence uh, time frames and or not being abstinent? Um, how do you sort of proceed with that? If my question's clear, I hope. Okay, thanks. Yeah, a landmine of a question. But here's what I will say. Here's my best answer. Um, unlike certain things like you must make amends, the big book does not come out and say anywhere you must be abstinent or sober a certain amount of time before or you don't need to be sober or abstinent a certain amount of four, 
time before, right? So I think people deduce it from different parts of the book. Um, and again, I am not saying I am right at all. I am just, you ask what I do. So based on my reading of the book where, and my experience, right? I got, I had, before I took that tough sponsor, I'd been stuffing bagel chips down my throat behind a locked bathroom door right before that meeting. Um, so here's what I do. If people say I need help, I'm desperate, I'm binging. It's like, okay, you know, I want to know if they're willing to go to any length. And if they are, I give them stuff to do. And what happens, I would say 80% of the time, if a person starts doing the work right away, um, and one of the things I have them do is make three phone calls to recovered people because I want them to get right in the mix right away and have a lot of support. And I have them connect with God 30 minutes a day right from day one. Um, and I help show them how if they don't know how. So they're connecting with God. They're connecting with fellows. They're going to meetings. They're doing um, recovery work. I don't tend to give tons and tons of like writing until the fourth step when there's more writing um, because it's about connecting with God. 80% of the time, the person um, will stop eating compulsively, I think. Maybe it's not 80, maybe it's 75, but a high percentage of the time. If not, um, then what I try and do is get them through the steps more quickly. It's like, okay, you admit you're powerless over food, let's start working on step two because step two is where we start getting power. On page 46, it says, as soon as a man says he believes or is willing to believe, he begins to be infused with a new sense of power, right? That's our problem, lack of power. So then I try to get them to step two really quickly um, so that they get their infusion of power. But I will work with someone who says I was binging an hour ago because I can start, I can start with them then. Um, and again, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying this is how I do it. Um, and as far as I can see, because the big book doesn't um, mandate that I do it a certain way that like I'm within the guidelines of the big book. So hope that helps and doesn't cause any controversy. Thank you very much, Dana P., for your question. We still have time, it looks like, for a couple, two, three more questions. If you're interested, press star one. Give me your name and your first initiative, your last name. Patricia P. Houston C. in New York. We got Patricia P. in Florida. Hang on just one second. Patricia P. I got Patricia P. And then I didn't hear anybody else out that. I got Marla. Lisa C. in New York. Patricia P. in Michigan. Patricia, I have you first, just to reassure you. I have okay. you first. And then Marla, and then Susan C. Okay, good. And then one more person, just to see if we have the time. Lisa, you? Florida? Somebody, you. Lisa? Lisa, that's you. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Okay, let's go with these four and then see what happens from there. Thank you for your interest and your eagerness. We first have Patricia P. with a question, then we have Marla. Okay, Patricia, you're okay. first. 
Uh, this is Patricia P. of Michigan. I'm just checking to see about her uh, prayer, she says, of the hour. I was just wondering how you developed that over time or what. Um, uh, what I did during the hour? So there's um, an app that has some spiritual stuff that I listen to a lot of days. And then I'll read spiritual literature. Sometimes I'll read the Bible or other devotionals that speak to me and I pray I um, so I incorporate praise and worship of God gratitude um, petitions for people who I care about um, asking for help for things that I need for myself so spend time in prayer and then I spend time in meditation I will set a timer or put on some um, music that's just like kind of background music and I'll sit there with um, my pen and a journal or my phone open on notes if my journal's upstairs and and I will ask God like I, I pray for knowledge of your will for me and the power to carry it out and how can I help the still suffering compulsive eater and sometimes if I have a specific problem or question I'll ask for guidance on that so between prayer, meditation, and spiritual reading, um, and sometimes if, like if I'm reading something in the Bible that's really interesting to me, I'll like look something up about it. So between all that stuff, I can um, I can fill an hour, and I don't look to fill an hour. I don't. Um, I mean, the min I have a minimum I'll set for myself of thirty minutes, but it's generally between thirty and sixty minutes. Um, so I hope that helps. Thanks. Thank you very much, Patricia P. Marla S., your question, please. Hello, can you hear me? I can, loud Hi. and clear. Jump right in. Great. All right. Hi there, Janet. Thank you. It's Marla uh, from Iowa. Uh, I did not get to hear your presentation. I came in late, but I can't wait to hear the, the recording. Um, I have two questions. The first one is... What is your uh, relationship like with your sponsees after they get through the work and they are recovered and living in 10 and 11 and 12? So if you answered that already, just skip the question. And then the second question is about uh, when you're doing your daily uh, 10th, when things disturb you throughout the day, um, when it talks about we talk to someone immediately after we first we ask God to remove it and talk to someone immediately. Um, there are times when I'm in fear that if I speak to God or pray in that moment, that it gets lifted pretty quickly, typically with fear. Do you always call and talk to another human being if it's been taken care of after you've prayed? Do you always do that? Is there something else you do? So those are the two questions. Thanks. Okay. So again, what sponsors do when some sponsors continue to talk to their sponsees every day um, you know, forever. Um, I don't because I feel like if I did, I would never be able to help new people. So what I do is once they're through the steps, I try and pair them up with like another sponsee or another fellow who's at that same level and hopefully they have stuff in common, like they're both young moms or something. And then they talk to each other. They become like nightly review partners. I have one myself. We send our nightly reviews to each other. We talk pretty much every day. And I call my sponsor for like emergencies, for the big stuff. And that's, I tell my sponsors, 
I'm always here if you need me. Um, but they don't need me every day. Hopefully, if I've done my job well, um, and my sponsor says the job of a sponsor is to take her sponsee's hand and put it in God's hand. So if I've done my job well, they don't need me um, so much, but I tell them I am always available, but it's not on a regular basis. And then as far as if something is removed right away, do I need to talk to someone about it? Here's what I would say. At the beginning, this is what I was told, at the beginning, yes. Um, Just because it's good practice to and to go over it and make sure we got it all right. But as we go along, I, I don't. If I have a fear and it's like, okay, God, please remove it, um, I don't call someone right away. I may put it on my nightly review that I had the fear. Um, but no, if it's, if it's resolved, um, I don't. But again, um, someone else might and someone's sponsor may tell them to. So please don't take what I said as like the last word on it. Thanks. Thanks. Perfect. Thank you very much, Marla S., for your question. Next up, Susan C. from New York. Your question, please. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, Melanie and Janet, for your ongoing service. And you had shared about, um, in response to a question, I think, about from the get-go, inviting your sponsees to connect with God. And I um, I wondered what that looks like, and perhaps it looks similar to how you j- just described your own process when you were answering, I think it was Patricia's question. But I also wanted to, ex- to have you um, explore, if you might, how it might differ based on the... Um, the conception that the individual has about God, not to suggest that it's a doorknob or a light bulb, but perhaps it's an energetic or perhaps it's just a nebulous notion of something beyond themselves. And I wonder how that might impact the way you broach it. Thanks so much. So I can only pass along what I have and what I do. And so I tell people really the three parts Um, spiritual reading, prayer, which is talking to God, and meditation, listening to God. So that's, I mean, that's what I do. So that's what I try and help my sponsees do. And I tell them, um, you know, for instance, when we get on the phone and we're doing step work on the phone and we're reading in the book, I always say, before we start, do a prayer. And I say, not a canned prayer. Prayer is just you talking to God so deep breath you're talking to God and I'm just a witness and so I encourage them to just start talking to God Um, some formal prayers but some talk just talking to God and again that's what I do so and I know so that's what I pass on thanks thank you Lisa you for your well, actually, I'm so sorry. That wasn't Lisa. That was Susan C. Thank you so much for your question. Next question goes to Lisa U. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Janet. Um, I was just wondering, how long do you take to move a sponsee through the steps, or does it depend on the sponsee? Thank you. 
Yeah, um, honestly, it depends on the sponsee because what I usually do is I'll give some work um, and then say, okay, text me when you're done and we'll make an appointment to talk. I once had a sponsee, it's like it was done almost instantly. And so she got through very quickly. If someone's taking too long, I give them something to do that should take an hour and it's three days and I haven't heard back, I'll say, um, we need to pick up the pace. So it's up to them to a point. If they're dragging their feet too long, it's like, okay, how much do you really want this? So that's it. Thanks. Thank you very much. Lisa, you, that's the end of our questions for today. And that's starting to wrap up the meeting today. Janet, thank you again for all that you've given yourself and expanded it by this Q&A period for people to go even deeper into what you shared today. It was a wonderful presentation. It's going to be grateful to have it on our archives. Always grateful for you. So we're going to close this meeting by reading from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only, and we'll continue on after. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right. And great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. <clears throat> Pardon me. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep